Welcome to In Our Own Defense podcast, where your host, attorney A.D. Winters, founder and managing attorney of VeteransDefender.com, and Dr. Dolores Tarver, licensed psychologist. For more information about our podcast, go to all of our social media, In Our Own Defense, on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and you can email us at inourowndefense at gmail.com. If you haven't had the chance, click this subscribe button right now so you can get all of our videos and listen to all of our podcasts wherever you find podcasts. Today, we have the privilege of discussing COVID-19, COVID vaccine hesitancy, and we're not recommending any particular vaccine or engaging in any vaccine shaming. We just have the luxury of coming here today with with, uh, some very talented experts to be able to come and talk to you about what it is and what it ain't and and, and why you should uh, maybe be more informed about taking a shot. Um, our mission is always the same. Our mission statement is simple. So Dr. Tarver, how have you been? I am awesome, sir. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Um, every time that we do a new show, last time we did our shows on uh, Dr. King weekend there in Memphis, uh, uh, remotely there in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, we're back doing a uh, video here. And, and what I oftentimes find is that from, from one show to the next, it seems like a month of Sundays because so much stuff happens that we could talk about. And I know we've been really excited about talking about this vaccine. I have my COVID vaccine scheduled uh, next weekend. Really excited about that, trying to save my own life and get ready to go see my little beautiful four-year-old who I haven't seen in a year. And, um, you know, so it just kind of it resonates with me that it's been almost a year since me and my four-year-old, the last thing we did, we went to a father-daughter dance uh, there in Houston. And because of my travels, I would not, you know, go be around her. We agreed to wait till after the, I got my vaccines, then I can finally connect with my daughter again. And then, so uh, my understanding that you had the chance to go and get your shots, how, how was that experience? I did. So I got my last one on Wednesday. I just took in the leave right before uh, we started this. <laughs> my arm is still a wee bit sore. So getting dressed has been a challenge. Uh, but I am thankful because really other than a sore arm, that's all I've experienced. I know some people get the flu-like symptoms after they get that second dosage. But I really didn't have anything significant with both vaccines other than a little sore arm. And I definitely can can deal with that. And so no extra arms or elbows or... I haven't grown an additional eye or any appendages as far as I know. Um, Yeah, so uh, I was waiting because I thought uh, today would be the day because you said it's the second day that things hit you. And I thought maybe today I would get uh, that third eye. But I'm glad that that none of that happened. No abnormalities. And, and, you know, I can't adjust, but but the truth is this is an extremely serious topic. So I'm really excited that we get the chance to uh, help inform our community about why it is important to take this COVID-19 shot. You know, so in today's podcast, we're featuring two talented, passionate, science-driven nursing professionals who are joining us to address this vaccine hesitancy. You know, uh, we're so lucky to be able to have this. And what do you think about the cognitive dissonance as it relates to behaviors uh, that our people are experiencing? Uh, you know, when when we were down south, I saw tons of people without masks, but it happens out west, out here in California. It happens in Georgia. What, 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 what do you think drives that train to the 
cognitive dissonance of, well, I ain't got to wear a mask. I ain't got to wash my hands every time I walk in the house and scrub down. You know, that fatigue. Well, what do you think is driving that? No, it's so interesting. Before we started, uh, we were admiring Dr. Dennis's background, Mardi Gras background. And I thought about uh, almost a year ago today, we were in New Orleans for Mardi Gras. Like we had <laughs> no idea. We're making cracking jokes about pangolins. And, and this virus that we thought was nowhere near us. Uh, a month later, I think that's when the United States really started getting hit in March. And then a thousand people had died at that point. And we thought, wow, a thousand people, that's a lot of people. And here we are, over you know, 400,000 people, almost 450,000 people later who have died. And it's just unimaginable. And so what happens for people is they don't wanna have to deal with the reality of that. Um, you think about all the people in your family that have died. Think about all the people that you know that have died. You think about coworkers. You think about families that have been wiped out. That's scary. It gives people a lot of anxiety. And so if I can make what I think in my mind match how I want to behave, that's what we call cognitive dissonance. I'm going to try to get those things to align. And so, yes, we were talking about Bow Wow had a concert in Texas. Uh, they're about to have a, a Silk and H-Town concert here in Columbus, Valentine's Ooh. weekend. Right. And so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> blows the mind. Like, really, people are still gathering for concerts, but I don't want to have to continue to be in my house. I don't want to have to continue to deal with the reality of all these people dying. I don't want to have to deal with the fact that people have lost jobs and resources and folks are struggling. And so I'm going to go and do the things that I enjoyed. Or I think to myself, well, if I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go out enjoying myself. I'm gonna go out being around people doing things I wanna do. And so there are just so many reasons why, and I think there's just a misunderstanding and miseducation too. Because some people really don't think that this coronavirus is significant because maybe all they got was sniffles. Maybe all they got um was a little a little headache and like lost their sense of smell but it came back uh, so to them it's not a big deal or they're thinking hey if i get it then i'll be immune and then i'll be fine and that's safer than me getting the vaccine so there's just so many different things that's why i'm so happy to have our two guests on today so they can really shed some light on and give people some accurate information about coronavirus and this vaccine so people can make these yeah you know I agree with you, and I'm, and I'm really excited to be able to debunk some of these myths. I'm, I'm really excited to have experts here to really, you know, we got our own versions of Dr. Fauci. We got people who <laughs> I think are, are extremely talented. And of course, you know, part of their education came from the Southern University. Yes, I know you, I knew you were going to, but you can know, we so, shout out that Dr. Yeah. Dennis has a degree from Xavier University <laughs> as well as two from Southern University. Yes, he is yes, our first yes, we did. That has to be yes. because oh, I I know you I know you be hating. <laughs> right. okay. No, this this is uh this is a this is an absolute privilege. So without further ado, why don't you take the uh you you Xavierite Dr. Uh, Tarber introduce Dr. Dennis to us. It is my extreme pleasure to introduce Michelle Dennis, PhD, RN, 
She has a Bachelor's of Science in Chemistry from the Xavier University of Louisiana. She has a Bachelor of Science in Nursing from the University of Alabama, and she has two degrees from Southern University, a Master's in Healthcare Public Administration and a Doctorate in Healthcare Public Policy. She is currently the Dean of Nursing and Allied Health Sciences for Baton Rouge Community College. She has served in many capacities, including surgical intensive care, perioperative and post-operative services, kidney and liver transplant coordinator, and director of nursing for Our Lady of Lake Regional Medical Center. Her passion is giving patients, family, and staff the best experience possible and embodying for her students and staff what she considers the most critical components of nursing, which are intellectual capability, ethical responsibility, and the most important element, compassion. So welcome to the show, Dr. Michelle Dennis. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. Attorney Winters, you want to introduce Dr. Fowler? I sure will. Uh, I'm really excited to do this. I've been knowing uh, Dr. Fowler for over 20 years. So um, without further ado, uh, Dr. Uh, Lynn uh, Henry Fowler, uh, DNP MBA, um, and an RN. Dr. Fowler serves as the Director of Nurse Practitioner Programs at LSU's Health uh, Science Center School of Nursing with more than 20 years um, at in nursing experience and acutely and critically uh, ill hospitalized uh, patients. Dr. Fowler's leadership in nursing is recognized internationally as a fellow of the Institute of Healthcare Improvement for her leadership and quality improvement nationally as an uh, American Association of Critical Care Nurses Circle of Excellence. And in the state of Louisiana, uh, John, uh, Governor John Bell Edwards appointed her to the, uh, the Louisiana COVID Health Equity Task Force, uh, you know, in order to, to rid out those, those health disparate, uh, race-based health disparages. Uh, Dr. Fowler serves as, the, as a board member of the state and national uh, nurse practitioner organization, has published articles, books, and uh, book chapters focused on evidence-based management and uh, vulnerable, acutely and critical ill patients uh, with academic success underrepresented by the nurse uh, practitioner students. Her career is engaging in the work and service of assuring health equity uh, with vulnerable hospitalized patients and assuring delivered high quality uh, and equitable education to that first future nurse practitioner uh, work uh, force. Uh, and what I could tell you really more about her than that curriculum vitae and that bio is that uh, the number one, uh, the, the top three things about her that I know is that uh, she's a Christian, she's a proud uh, family mother and uh, wife, and, um, and she really, really, really uh, loves the practice of nursing, and we're so lucky to have her here. So without further ado, let's welcome this Jaguar here. All right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, uh, thank you guys both for being here. We're really excited to have you guys here. But I want to jump right into the questions. Uh, the first one's to you, Dr. Fowler. Uh, COVID-19 has been described as many things, a hoax, a virus made in China, just like the flu, a conspiracy. Uh, can you, you know, elaborate and discuss with us um, what exactly is the coronavirus? What is COVID-19? And why does it affect everyone so differently? And, and, and above that, what are the, the variants that we keep hearing about uh, lately? Yeah. 
So that's a lot of questions in one. Um, what, <laughs> what I'll do is, is unpack it. First of all, the virus is SARS coronavirus 2. Um, it is the second uh, very quote unquote scary coronavirus that, that we have named. So it's number two. Number one happened when we heard about SARS and you know, back in the day, it did not become a pandemic. Uh, it started in a small area and, and spread, but it didn't get global, it didn't go global. So now we have uh, another version of a coronavirus. We have lots of viruses out there. This particular virus transformed and it started infecting humans. It came from a bat. We, we've heard all of this, that is true. They've done the genetic, the genetic testing to uh, debunk the myth that it was created in a lab because there are codes where, where, where viruses adapt and genes mutate and genes you know, change. Um, that, that's part of, of natural life. We as humans have done it as well. So this particular virus uh, derived from a bat, it transformed and it became infectious towards humans. Now, with that being said, what makes the virus different than COVID-19, COVID-19 is the disease it mm. causes. So the disease is, is manifested or is evidenced by uh, illness, all right? So you have the virus and then you have illness, right? Okay, so breaking down those terms. Now, when we think about how we respond as the host, we are human hosts. Any living thing likes to live longer, right? So it finds a host to live within. Mm. The reason why we respond differently is, is variable. The first reason why we respond differently is because one, we may not have that much virus that we have been infected with. So we know over the 20 something million people in the United States that have been infected, we have recorded as positive cases. We know just like sexually transmitted infection, that there's some positive cases that we don't have recorded, right? But these are the known positive cases. Of that 20 plus million across the United States, they have had very mild illness, right? Very mild illness. Many have been asymptomatic. Um, so why is that? We think that is because number one, they probably did not have a lot of the virus that they were infected with. We call that viral load. So that means that the number of viral particles. And then number two, if they had very good health, our body, our immune system, the way our physiology works is to attack the virus, kill it and get rid of it out of our body. So they had pretty healthy immune systems. Um, with that being said, those who have been infected, you know, there was a study that came out in um, January. We're in February now. I have to remind myself of that. In January, it was published with the New England Journal of Medicine. It was a very small sample. It was only, it wasn't multi-centered. So it's not very high on the reliability uh, chart, but it's good information that we can use right now because the sample was very diverse. Um, it showed us of persons who were infected with mild 
who had who were infected either were asymptomatic or had very mild symptoms that means they were not hospitalized they did not need oxygen they didn't need to take medication to get better um, or at least uh, the antiviral medications to get better they lost immunity within right around the 36 day period okay so we'll get back to that when we talk about do i am i immune since i've been positive Okay, so that's that's what we need to know for mild infection. Okay. Now, the rest of us, those who have had severe illness, they are usually it is it is usually because they were already vulnerable. Their health, their their health status was already um, burdened by other problems. They may have even had immunocompromising illnesses like diabetes, chronic kidney disease, hypertension, things like things like that. We know the leading comorbidity, the leading problem that put patients at at uh, risk was hypertension. Right mm -hmm. after hypertension, diabetes. Okay. Now after we we sort out the comorbidities, then we need to think about other things that we stratify. Age. Age. So we know that the most vulnerable are those with multiple comorbidities. You know, some people may have one, one they may only have hypertension, they may not have diabetes, obesity, and those other things. Are they at risk? Yes, but the person who has hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, obesity, which are a lot of people, and if they're older, particularly older than 65, but especially older than 71, they're at very high risk. So the reasons why we react differently to being infected are variable. But what we need to know is that that virus spreads rapidly. It's airborne. A cough, as studies have shown that a cough, a cough which has very strong propulsion of air droplets, it moves at about 18 miles per hour, a cough. Oh. And droplets can go as far as eight meters. Right, so that's beyond our six feet. Our six feet, we, we try we try to be reasonable with with regulations, um, but that's six feet with a mask on, right? So hopefully you cough into the mask if anything, and we don't have that distance. Um, so so to to go back and summarize, just to make this simpler, is that it's an RNA virus. An RNA virus mutates. We have plenty of RNA viruses in, in the world. Flu is an RNA virus, Ebola was an RNA virus. Um, hepatitis, there's a hepatitis virus that is an RNA virus. Uh, HIV has some RNA, RNA mutations. So there are many RNA viruses. And what we know about RNA viruses is that they mutate. What makes the flu vaccine so difficult to prevent for flu seasons every year is because the flu mutates. So we see all these variants coming about. That was expected because we know that's the behavior of this type of virus. That is the behavior. Just like we adapt, the germs adapt. So mm. that's the behavior of this type of virus. It will mutate because it's trying to protect itself. So it, it will mutate. We expect that. The variants come because of geographical location. They, it, they, they react differently to different so you mm. hear about the Brazil variant, and you hear about the South African variant, and you hear about the Southeast Asian variant. That's where we started. Well, that's because the hosts are different. They have different conditions. They're in different climates. They have different living. Um, you know, 
it, it's mutating to adapt. And that's, that's the natural evolution of, of viruses. That's, I feel like I'm, I'm a doctor now. Like, that was awesome. Let me tell you, they have never said that on the TV one time. They've said breaking news a million times, and no one has ever come and educated me like that. No one has ever. Just tell me what it is. Oh, it, it's and it, so that's, much, though. that's awesome. It's so much, and it's so much on TV. Um, you know, sometimes you just don't know what to pay attention to because it's so much. Yeah, overstimulated. Yeah, that. But but I think you gave it to us, and I know it was a lot that I asked. But that's what we really need to be at. Like, I feel like we have a base now of knowledge to live in, and I think that our our listeners have a base of knowledge to say, look, this is what it is. This is what it's not. This is what it's supposed to do. This is why I act different with each person. Here's the risk when you have that. But the viral load is really the most important thing. Watch, the, you know, that's how it affect you different. So that that's that's brilliant. Uh, I feel enlightened. Uh, Dr. Tarver, how do you feel about that? <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you too for clarifying some things for people because I think, again, it's miseducation. That is why people think as long as I have a mask on, even if it's hanging down my nose and half off my face, like that's still being helpful or that I'm safe if I'm six feet uh, away, but we're in here around a bunch of, of people and we have no idea where these people have been and what they've been doing. Um, but, but I think because it's my family, then we're fine because it's my family mm -hmm. uh, and why we're, we're all affected so different because I think there is a lot of confusion about, um, I mean, a false sense of security for people about that they're not going to be at risk. So thank you for, and that was very clear. A lot of times we get real jargony and I think people get lost in that, but you did a great job, I think breaking that down for people that didn't go to college and research viruses. So thank you so <laughs> well, much thank you. for that. I appreciate that. Um, Dr. Dennis, I know that you have, uh, speaking of the viral effects of this infection, I know you have seen a lot um, in your work. And I want to kind of help people understand what does this look like when people present, when they're coming in, what are our practitioners actually dealing with? What are you all seeing in your environments? Because again, there's a lot of misinformation and I think people feel like everybody just gets a runny nose. Um, and that is not at all the case. And so let's talk some real numbers because again, we have over at this point, close to 450,000 or over, I think we hit that mark, um, thousand people who have died from this. Um, and people are thinking, well, how many deaths are really truly related to COVID? Because that's what we always say, that folks are dying, but y'all don't know if it's COVID or not. So can you just talk about what you have observed in your experience? What are you really actually seeing? Thank you, Dr. Tarber. I will um, say that on the onset of the pandemic, I was actually still on the clinical side. I was actually still present there in the hospital um, before transitioning into my new role. So I actually was there and um, watched as our hospital, as we transformed from normal day-to-day -day operations to going into full-blown emergency mode, meaning that we went from one day, you know, um, knowing that the virus was around, we had a plan, you know, this is from an administrative standpoint, we had a plan. We knew that, you know, at some point we may get a few patients. So we had um, sectioned off a couple of rooms on the third floor, you know, that we had for vacant space. And, you know, we always had the mindset that it wouldn't be, you know, um, 
if the virus comes. We knew that it would, but it would be when it gets here. And so we still didn't think that it would go, we would go from having no patients to transforming an entire tower into COVID, okay? So for us, um, actually what, what happened and I remember it and I, and I made sure I took good notes so that as I get older and I begin to, I don't have any kids, but you know, telling my nieces and well, telling my nephews and you know, telling stories about this in the future that I'll be able to remember exactly what happened. You know, I can remember that first day of getting that first admission in the ER. And so, and it was like the person, they needed to stay, they needed to be admitted. Um, this case, the, the patient wasn't, they weren't terribly sick at this point. But the thing that we noticed on the early onset of this pandemic, patients would come in and they would present high fevers, um, you know, all of the symptoms that went along with it, the headaches, um, all of those issues there. But then they would turn all of a sudden, their oxygen levels would start dropping. They would go from being on nasal cannula to go into non-rebreather, then to needing to be intubated. And it would happen just like that. And so you would see, you know, literally the way we had it set up on the units where you had, you know, of course your nursing staff there at the bedside, but what we had, we had mid-levels and CRNAs there present on every unit. Like once we transformed the units, there were at least two NPs and two um, CRNAs there readily available to intubate patients because that's just when they, when patients started to desat, when it was time for them to be intubated, it needed to happen right then or the, the, the possibility of losing that patient increased I mean, within minutes. And so that's just how fast, you know, and one of the things that we we didn't realize because of course everything was developing in real time. It wasn't like, you know, you could pull from studies at the Mayo Clinic, you could pull from Johns Hopkins and all of that, you know, being, in the hospital setting, you can always look to your bigger institutions, but you know, they've been through it before. We can pull, you know, we can pull research from them, but it was happening in real time everywhere around the country. So we were all learning together. And it was like, you know, you may hear about something at work. This is what we tried. I can tell you, you know, the process that we were using at the beginning of the pandemic, is not the same process that, you know, that we're using now because, you know, you adapt. And as, as Dr. Fowler was talking about how the virus adapted and, you know, the patients and the presentation changed. So that was one of the things that was really, you know, and for me, I was 20 years in and having worked at UAB the majority of my career, I thought I had seen everything, you know, um, from, you know, in terms of major illnesses and people getting, being really, really sick. I thought that I had seen it all, but having a patient that come in to come in and they're talking, you know, that they're positive, you know, and again, you're talking to them through the window. They may be texting on their phone, they're watching TV. And then all of a sudden they start to deset. You see their vital signs change. And then they go from again, nasal K or even no oxygen at all to, you know, again, they're on a rebreather. And then all of a sudden you come back the next day and they're fully intubated and the game has changed. And then, you know, in a couple of days, they maybe they pass. And the, the biggest part was, you know, all of this is happening in real time. And, you know, and then you're steadily admitting patients steadily because when the spike hit, I mean, it hit, it hit in real time. And so you, you're constantly every day and then you're looking for space. You're trying to adjust in terms of staffing. You're making sure um, that you have all the supplies and everything that you need. But then on top of that, you have, you have staff, you know, and staff are, they're getting sick. They're worried about their families. They're reluctant to come in. There were just so many compounding factors, you know, that went along with all of this. 
and every day and it was just like for me you know and coming in and even for the staff you know from the administrative standpoint you know i'm trying to keep my staff encouraged and trying to make sure that they know that we're here to support them and give them all the emotional support that they need but also you know looking at these patients and they were dying alone you know, because you, you couldn't get families into the hospital. We were completely closed to everything, you know, so it's not like they're looking at the window. The last image they have, you know, in their minds is when that patient came into the hospital. So, you know, there were just so many, I could go on and on so many factors about it, but your question relates to the real numbers and the confusion there. And a lot of people had, there was this big myth that, you know, if you came into the hospital anytime from March to, to July, when that big first surge hit, if you die, they're gonna say you die from COVID just because. And that's not true. You know, that simply wasn't true. And what happened was, you know, you had patients that came in and as Dr. Fowler mentioned, they had other comorbidities. So they had the diabetes, they had hypertension, they were overweight you know all these other uh, factors that contributed and then they got COVID and so it wasn't the fact that you know they've been living with diabetes they've been living with hypertension they've been overweight all of this time but it was the COVID that pushed them over the edge so yes that was their cause of death you know so and that's I believe where the where the myth came because there were really that many patients that had COVID and I mean it was just um unfortunate of course you know the way everything happened and of course you know the myths and they just people just keep talking and they just keep adding stuff and it just keeps compounding and um and you hear these i've heard all types of rumors you know oh you know they're just going to say that you have covid don't worry about it and then, so you had people that didn't even want to come to the hospital because they were afraid that just simply coming to the hospital would give them covid you know and so and i'm, and I'm thinking to myself how is this and you know for for us from from the nursing standpoint we've been coming every day, you know, since the pandemic started, you know, every day we've been coming to work. So does that mean that I get COVID just by virtue of pulling up in the parking garage every day and coming to work? No, you know, we're taking those same precautions and we're protecting ourselves and caring for patients just as we were before the pandemic entered. So it was just, there were so many just miss and it just kept, it keeps going. And now that the vaccine is coming out and it's just, you know, it's, it's just so much. And I just, I really wish that everybody would just kind of stop and take a deep breath and just realize that, you know, viruses do exist, just as Dr. Fowler said, they do mutate, we do adapt and, you know, things will get better. Um, but but COVID was real, you know, it, it is real. The people that the 447,000 uh, 447, people that have died across this country, those numbers are real, you know, but to say, had they not acquired COVID, would they have died? Maybe they wouldn't, but that was their cause of death. And so, we, I mean, that's just the reality of this disease and how hard it's hit, you know, our country and the world, you know. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I mean, I know that you had mentioned um, during our pre-production call too, that nurses were afraid to come to work, that there were some nurses that were really struggling with trying to work within this virus for fear that they might be affected and they could bring that home to their families as well. Uh, and so that they're, that, yeah. So in fact, like not only are you all afraid of things, but the healthcare professionals are afraid too. So thank you so much for sharing um, some of what you were, were seeing in that environment.